Can we get off the train? Can we take a break, explore new projects, and then restart? When I asked Angara Valdivia what would be her one wish for the future of you know, the field of communication and media studies, if she had magical power, she said, I wish after PhD, people could take a year off, replenish, and then move forward in their careers. I thought that was a fascinating proposition, part of a great conversation with Angarat Valdivia from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in this episode of El Café Latinx. What's the experience of being a Latinx scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalifa Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx communication across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. We are truly honored to be joined today by Angarat Valdivia. Angarat Valdivia is Research Professor of Communication and Media Studies at the Institute of Communication Research and the Department of Media and Cinema Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where she has uh, been since 1994. Before that, she worked at Penn State and she had many visiting positions in universities in Europe, Latin America and North America, including Canada. She has had also a very, very distinguished and successful career as an administrator at the University of Illinois. She got her BA from the University of California, San Diego and her PhD from UIUC. She's the author of three monographs co-editor or editor of another six and has had many, many articles and awards uh, bestowed to her in her very distinguished career, including very recently, she was named ICA Fellow in 2020, which is one of the highest distinctions in our field. So I'm very, very pleased to be honored and uh, to be joined today, sorry, by uh, Professor Valdivia. So tell us, just for starters, how did it all begin? How was the start of the journey that led you to become you know, a professor and such a distinguished professor as you are today? Yeah, I, I was looking at that question and I was thinking, well, all the way back to my abuelitas, my grandmothers, they were both teachers, right? So I grew up in an environment where there was no doubt that I was excel in school and that I was going to go to college. So that that's, I, I think that that's not unimportant, right? And then, uh, when, when I was uh, in, in a high school student, uh, as an immigrant, I had, you know, I had no idea of the kind of different statuses of different colleges. But one time, totally by random uh, kind of experience, one of my friends' father took us for a drive and we drove by UCSD, 
which is across the street from the ocean. And I told them, I said, that's where I'm going to go to college. And they both looked at me and they're like, are you kidding? I mean, and I said, no, that's where I want to go. And so when I was graduating from high school, I told my counselor, I was going to apply to UCSD. And she said to me, no, you people apply to community colleges. And I'm like, you people, is there a community college by the beach? And she's like, no, but you can't apply to UCSD. So anyways, that, that didn't work for me. I went to another teacher who said, oh, that's crazy. Of course you apply. And it's the only place I applied to when I got into. But I have to tell you that my main impetus for going to UCSD is it was across the street from the beach. And that's the only place that I applied to. I didn't know there were other beach campuses. And it ended up that I got just the most wonderful education there, right? We, we had professors Hallen, Schutzen, and Professor Schiller. And I, you know, I, I, it was a very good place for me to get an education. And then they all sent me to, to Illinois. So that's, I, it was kind of accidental. And then I did not set out to become a professor, but I thought, I just don't know what I'm going to do with my life. So I'm going to keep studying and I'm going to keep doing this. And I, I swear to you, it wasn't until I got tenure that I woke up one day and I thought, oh, this is my career. Because until then I kept thinking, well, I have to figure out what to do with my life. But I, this is really kind of a fun thing to do. I'll keep doing it, right? And at that point, I kind of shifted gears and thought, oh, wow, I'm a professor. This is like, this is a thing. And, and this is what I will devote all of my uh, kind of professional energies to. Uh, and I know that that's not very usual, uh, but that's, that's the way that it worked out. Whereas I had other people in my ecosystem that they knew they were going to go to grad school. I mean, I went to grad school primarily because everybody I knew was going to grad school. And I thought, they're no smarter than I am. So I'm going to apply to grad school. I mean, that's really why I applied because I'm like, everybody at UCSD was going to med school or to grad school. So I'm like, okay, that's what I'll do too. Uh, and, uh, but, but so it's been more of an accidental thing, but I do trace back all the way to my grandmothers that I thought I'm, I'm going to excel in school. And this is something that I can do that women in my family have done for generations and I will not let them down. So I feel like I have them. Actually, my grandmother gave me this. Well, I, I'm just showing you a little medal that I, I carry her with me at all times. Yeah. That's a beautiful story, actually. Um, yeah. Um, so, so you said you're an immigrant, um, so um, where did you grow up and, and um, when did you come to the States? Um, I, um, I was born in Viña del Mar and then I grew up in, Chi in Valparaíso and then when I, it was time to go to elementary school, my parents moved to Santiago and I, we lived there until sixth grade and then we moved out because of the political situation. My father moved out the whole family out because he knew that there was going to be an overthrow and he thought it would be a hard place for children to grow it up in uh, and we lived in venezuela and then we moved to the united states first to ohio and then to san diego so i did my junior my my junior and high school in the u.s and then yeah junior high school in ohio that's where i learned english then high school in california and college undergrad and then Illinois PhD. So you started in the Midwest your US journey and then you went back to the Midwest. It felt quite it felt quite uh you know quite familiar the Midwest. That's right. It it is it's a very 
it's a very specific place, but uh, but I came back here, yeah. Okay, so so do you think your your journey as an immigrant um, has shaped uh, your career and your scholarship in terms of both you know how your career has unfolded and and the topics that you choose? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say that at first. I was trying to not do that, right? And so I pursued international political economy as my specialization uh, as a graduate student, right? Mm -hmm. And my, my dissertation included gender, but it was more within an international political economy perspective of production. Uh, and, uh, but then when I got to my first job at Penn State, they're like, they were having none of it. I mean, they just met with me and they said, oh, you're going to teach this course on gender minorities and the media. And I'm like, but that's not what I do. And they basically said, but that's what you look like. And they sent me to do that. So I had to create a course on an area that I had never taught before. And, uh, and by way of doing that, I began to see that in minorities and the media, there was more research on African-Americans than on, you know, uh, like in those days it was called Hispanics or indigenous populations or Asian. So I began to try to collect a broader range of materials for that class. And then, and then I began to look at the fact that the Hispanic stuff was, you know, there was not enough. There was so much more to be done. And I kept being pushed toward it by colleagues. I, and they're like, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? So then I would turn those into little mini projects. And then before I knew it, I was deep into Latina Latino studies. Yeah. So how, I mean, you've been one of the pioneers in this area in communication and media studies, and you've been doing this work for, for some time. So how would you describe the, the evolution of the dialogue, of the conversation? Um, about issues of uh, what was then called, let's say, Hispanic Americans, you know, Latino, Latina, Latinidad, Latinx. Um, we could even talk, if you, if you want, about some of the different uh, terminologies. Um, but how would you describe overall, given the, 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 the wonderful career that you have had um, and, and the vantage point over time, um, the evolution of, of the conversation, of the dialogue about this in, in the academia? A great question. I am. Um, first of all, me being originally Chilena, right? I'm not exactly the dominant Latinidad in the United States. <laughs> and so at many points, I have been told that implicitly and sometimes explicitly, like, uh, we can't hire you here because when we said Latino, we really meant Mexican American. And that it's not going to work out for us, right? So I've been told that in job interviews. And uh, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and so I became, I had to begin to understand because, you know, as a Chilean American, you do, it, it's all an education, right? To understand the specificities of history in the United States of Chicanismo, of Mexican Americans, of Hispanidad, and then the, that being a Southwest thing that's moved around and so now it's, I mean it's everywhere but it's usually stereotyped as only a southwest thing then the the, the northeast Boricua and uh, Dominican studies Ramon Hernandez and stuff like that and and so there's so much there and I think that for me the 
the education for it was when I came to Illinois as a faculty member and the Latina Latino studies program was just beginning. And there were all these wonderful faculty, Matt Garcia, whose birthday it is today. So happy birthday, Matt, uh, who's now at Dartmouth and Alejandro Lugo, who is now at um, Arizona State. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel like they were my professors in schooling me about U.S. Latinidad, history, anthropology, and, uh, and there was a lot to learn, you know, and, and, and the relationality and also the tensions, the tensions, there's such tension uh, uh, because I, I would attribute most of the tensions to the limited resources allotted to the study of this area that people end up fighting over each other, over the little crumbs that the academy throws at them. I don't think that the tensions arise out of intrinsic hostility, but just lack of resources. And so, so I've pursued that kind of a pan-Latino uh, study with respect and attention to specificity, right? So I'm always saying things like, this is a flattening of Latinidad. You're pulling this thing out from here. Uh, but and and so that but it's been I've had to navigate this because I am an outsider within U.S. Latinidad, uh, and I realized that, uh, and and a, and a really a real minority within U.S. Latinidad, where the majority is still Mexican American and rightly so, and Boricua and stuff like that. So I I feel like I was schooled on how to navigate that because when I first got here. I just thought, you know, I thought in terms of Chilenidad being Latinidad, but of course that is that is understandable, but not educated enough. And so what strategies have you sort of developed over the years to successfully navigate that sort of outsider-insider position? Yeah. Uh, try like when I give talks or I go into a presentation and I, I have to say things like, you know, I understand that the specificity of this region is a longstanding, you know, history of indigeneity and uh, Spanish colonization uh, and that this region used to be Mexico, right? So this, this is Me Mexicanidad, a Mexican -Amer Americanness here, that that's the specificity and, um, you know, respectful of, um, the hybrid presence of indigeneity, Afro-Latinidad. Uh, so to really kind of call it out and, and, and you know, and also say, I, I now speak from a Midwesterner kind of positionality. And here in our Latina Latino Studies program, we have always strived for Pan-Latinidad because when we created the program, those of us that were here, uh, we knew that there were these very, very intense political affiliations with specific identities, but yet we were in the middle of nowhere and we had to be, uh, we wanted to be inclusive. We wanted to be, pan we created it as pan-Latino, pan-Latina, and we, we wanted to be gender inclusive. So we said Latina, Latino studies, and at recent points, people have wanted, or not wanted, discussed the possibility of Latinx, but, but we've opted to say Latina, Latino studies, I would say kind of uh, following Ricky Rodriguez's, you know, kind of exhortation asking us to, to honor the specificity of the Latino, but he speaks as a queer Latino. He says, I'm, I want to speak of Latinos. I don't want to speak of Latinx. So I don't want to lose that specificity. So we have 
thus far opted to stay Latina Latino, but anybody that wants to identify or call anything Latinx, of course, that's their prerogative to do. We're not judging. We're just, that's, that's the way that it is still kind of being decided. And I realized this is a very uh, important thing. You know, my, my daughter considers herself Latinx and she rolls her eyes whenever I say Latina Latino. So I see this partly as generational and I'm very, you know, respectful of her Latinexidal. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so it's, I, I find that it's great that people are having these conversations because this speaks to a maturity and, an, and a, a visibility to be able to articulate these different subjectivities. And do you, do you find yourself having these conversations in, in the classroom and are they similar, different from the conversations that you have with your colleagues or with your family? Okay, so in the classroom, uh, not very much because I teach in media studies and communication. So I don't have that many Latino studies uh, or Latino students. So I have some, but not a lot. And so not, not very much in the classroom, not even in the doctoral student classroom. Uh, now I do have uh, seminars with my La La Latina students and I think most of them consider themselves Latinx now. And, uh, and, and this doesn't really come up as an issue. I mean, they use the term, uh, you know, whatever, uh, and, and I'm respectful of it. Uh, in the family, it's just so different, you know, Pablo, because I mean, for example, I, I have, you know, in the previous generation, there's still a lot of my family that lives in Chile. So this, this, all this thing is commonly good to them. You know, they're like, what, what those gringos are locos, you know, what, what are they spending time talking about this? So that's their kind of take on it. So whatever, but you know, people who are here of the previous generation, when they see the word X, they think of triple X. So they don't want to use Latin X because I, I, you know, like, you're not, you're not, you don't get us to your sex. So, you know, that kind of a thing. I mean, you know, so I don't know if the younger generation realizes that when you add X to words for a particular generation, they're thinking triple X, double X, X rated. So what does that mean that Latinos are X rated? I'm like, no, no, no. And so, you know, Latin America, they use the E, right? Latines. I think that's a little bit better because the X or the X does signify something overlapping with sexually explicit content that a particular generation does not want to be associated with. Uh, um, but in my family, I think that 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 only that doesn't come up that much, you know, issues of sexuality have come up as I have, you know, a sister that's come out and she wants us all to kind of call out our gender and be gender inclusive more so than the, the way to call our Latinidad out. Okay, and 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 um, going, you know, following up on, you know, what you said about your your family back in Chile, and, you know, we are locals and things like that. But taking it out of the context of the family and into the context of the field, I mean, there there are people who do international communication, international media studies, who focus on Latin America. And then uh, there are people who study issues of uh, Latinidad in the US. Um, what has been your experience navigating both worlds and the continuities and discontinuities, you know, um, between the study of Latin America and Latin American type issues and the study of uh, Latinidad in the US? Right. Uh, 
that's a question, right? So, so there's uh, that was what I was alluding to in my presentation that there's Latin American studies mm -hmm. and where you study the region as a whole, geopolitics of the region, but also try to be attuned and as 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 knowledgeable as possible about specificity. And then there's the U.S. Latino experience, which has its own history. Uh, and then there's the hybrid experience. A lot of people are both, you know, so you cannot say there's that and then there's this because you have people that that are both. They're Latin American and U.S. Latinos and they're trying to navigate that. So when I'm when I'm doing Latin American stuff, uh, it's also very hard to kind of, you know, there's, it's very hard to assert any kind of purity or separateness because, for example, when I'm in Barranquilla, La Universidad del Norte in Colombia, you know, and you're talking about, for example, a figure such as Shakira or another personality or celebrity such as Sofia Vergara, both of whom are from Barranquilla and people in Barranquilla know them or know their family or went to school with them, right? So there's a transnational flow there between the Caribbean Colombian into the Andean Colombian into the Miami kind of crossover into the US, you know, and then the kind of launching, especially of Shakira into the global sphere where she no longer even resides here. She's in Spain and she was always part Lebanese and that's what she was doing. And so, but that's why I kind of, if people ask me, what kind of a scholar are you? I almost always say I'm a transnational scholar because it's very hard to, to assert purity and to claim that there's even notes of purity. Because even when I was writing, for example, about Rigoberta Menchu, Rigoberta Menchu has cousins in LA and she has, you know, uncles in Paris. You know, people think of Rigoberta Menchu as the ultimate pure indigenous subject. And she's not. Her whole family is transnationally involved, you know, and, uh, and, and, and so she represents, you know, that particular Guatemalan Quiche indigenous tribe, but she is not divorced or unlinked or unconnected to global flows. And so the global flows are the ones that I, I focus on, you know, and, uh, and then the kind of momentary kind of location that is nonetheless significant. And by momentary historical terms, you're talking sometimes quite a long time, but, uh, but it's very hard to find a pure subject or a pure cultural product or a pure uh, industry because the, the flows are almost impossible to avoid, impossible. That's fascinating. And, and and how about the reception of those ideas? Because you've, I mean, you work at the University of Illinois. Um, you've also taught at other universities in the States. You've taught all over Latin America, not all over, but in many places, including in Colombia. You've also had visiting positions in many universities in Spain, right? Um, over periods of time. So you have had in the classroom and with colleagues conversations about your ideas uh, in different locales. Right, um, and I'm, I'm just talking about. I mean, of, of course, also outside of the Spanish-speaking context of the Latin, Latinidad, Latinx context. So, um, what have been? How would you characterize the reception uh, of your ideas in, in in your work about these issues in this sort of difference of in the Iberian Peninsula, in North America or North America, the U.S. because Mexico is also North America, and in um, uh, Latin America. 
any major patterns of similarity and difference? Uh, any observations about, you know, not only how, you know, the objects of inquiry flow, but the cultures of reception flow as well? So, I was, as you were asking your question, I was thinking the most kind of almost protected or region-specific audience that I've ever had has been in Uji, which is in Castellón, in the province of Valencia, in Spain. And there, it's almost like stepping into another era because the classroom there, and it was a master's level classroom that I taught, the, the students there were very much regionally rooted, uh, school, they spoke Valenciano, they didn't speak Spanish. Uh, and they, were, they had to be forced to speak Spanish to me because Valenciano is similar, but not the same. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and all of their cultural references and were so local. It was almost like somehow they had managed to preserve a little bubble in a way that I didn't see anywhere else in the world, not in Madrid, not in Barcelona, not in Santiago, Valparaíso, Barranquilla, Bogotá, just like in, in Castellón, in Castellón and Valencia. It was, and it's still that way and it's, it's so special, but it's literally like stepping into another century, right? In terms of that bubble of influence of the particular group that I work with. Uh, now, in terms of, depending on what I'm doing, right? Because I do different things. When I do children and the media, uh, and that's a really, you know, um, just wonderful group of scholars throughout the world. Uh, when I'm working with the children and the media uh, people in Chile, then they're so globally, you know, globally connected or, or in Colombia, Preciosa Media in Bogota, for example, with Claudia Valencia. Uh, so the, the, their, the whole thing is about the flow and the conversation and the, the influence and los patrones, the patterns that might work. So it's, that is a very, very global flow. It going from Munich, right? From Easy, from Maya God's kind of thing there, the pre Jones to, to, like I said, Colombia, Chile. That is a very, and so when I go in there, uh, we're talking, for example, about Disney and I participated in a Disney project that was global and how Disney is everywhere. And now it's impossible to measure race in Disney, for example, because what counts as white in Japan is not the same thing as in Colombia or as in the UK. So you couldn't measure it in this global project because everybody's definition of what white meant or what black meant was different. So you could not come to an agreement as to the most basic kind of categories. So, and that's the international communication also very global, but international communication research is still very Eurocentric, I would argue. There's books that's like decolonizing, and I'm like, this is not a very decolonizing table of contents. You know what I mean? And so I was very glad when Christina Venegas and her colleagues just put out this, this book out of UC Santa Barbara that really incorporates a lot of indigenous uh, people from uh, activists and scholars from Ecuador and from Peru and from the Amazon in Brazil. So that was just launched last week. Uh, and, and, and so I saw that as a very salutary contribution to international communications. Now, in terms of gender, a lot of the times the gender global stuff is still very, very Eurocentric and white, right? And so you're still having to kind of say, oh, you know, you almost have to, almost at a token, kind of mention girls of color or scholars who are focusing 
on those issues. So there, I think that especially in girls' studies, there has been a lot of tension within the International Girls' Studies Association, of which I am a vice president, I mean a co-president, uh, in terms of inclusivity, right? We've had a, a number of issues with that. I'm trying to kind of, and in fact, that's why I am the co-president because everybody else on the organizational board was not inclusive in terms of any kind of, you know, uh, markers of inclusivity. So I think that it depends on the topic that I'm doing. Now, when I talk about Latinos in the, in the you know, Latin America, that doesn't make a lot of sense there, right? That does, that's not, that, that almost has no purchase. It's like, what are you talking about? You know, you, you're talking about Latin Americans, right? I'm like, no, U.S. Latinos. Also, oh, La Latino Americanos, I'm like, no. So that, that is a conversation that repeats itself. And, and sometimes I'm wondering why am I even trying to say this? Because it's not leading to, to, you know, a productive engagement with any kind of politics or topic. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Um, and then, you know, given your research, given um, your experience, uh, your embodied experience in, in, in your research, um, what if you were to translate what you just said, and you know we've been discussing for about half hour to um, to young scholars, um, both you know Latinx people in the U.S., but also um, Latino Latina scholars, Latina scholars in Latin America, right? Um, um, what advice would you give them as they start their careers, as they think about research projects, as they think about um, career strategies, um, all of that? How, how, what would you say about how positionality, um, you know, shapes uh, trajectories of younger uh, colleagues? Yeah, and it's, I'm, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like the situation now for these younger scholars is so much more challenging and competitive than it was when I was, you know, coming up the pike. And, you. Uh, you know, and it's the post-recessional world has been really, you know, harsh, you know, and this impacts everybody, including scholars, of course, except for STEM scholars, you know, I just like, I think that's a whole different world is like, I hear if this part goes on there, I'm like, that's fantasy. You know what I mean? That's that's not our, um, but uh, I think that's still one of the things that is important is to really become grounded in your field in, in, in very strongly. So not just, not to go immediately into a specialization, but to ground yourself in your field because you'll always be speaking to your field, right? And, uh, and then, to pursue that, I, I would say intersectionally, that grounding. So let's say you, you start off with Daniel Lerner, the passing of modernity, 1958, right? Uh, but then you have to branch out already. You know, you have to kind of immediately kind of think, okay, you came to terms with that, with Wilbur Schramm, with W.W. W. Rostow, just to go to that generation. And then you have to kind of, you know, kind of expand to Rohan Samarajiwa, who, you know, speaks about the 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 surveillance and all of that and to Colleen Roach who who speaks about the gender and elite elements in NWICO and and so I think and and also so I think that grounding immediately branch out to intersectionality and and to be I, I say I always say to my students you got to be respectful to everybody because you never know you never know and it's a very very small field
It's very small. So it's, it's, if you do anything wrong, it will come back to bite you, right? And so it's, it's a horrible way to live, but the way to do it is just be as respectful and assume everybody's a professor. That's what I tell them. So when you're, when you're in a conference, if you run into somebody, you say, hello, Professor Valdivia. Because you cannot believe people still treat me like I was a, under, as a grad student. And it's not because I look young. It's because they don't think that Latinas can be professors. You know, that's what it is. But I say, just call everybody professor. If they're a professor, they'll go, yeah, I'm a professor. But if they're not, you're not going to offend them. But if you call a professor a grad student, that is not good. And most of them are going to remember. Professors don't have a really good memory of meeting new people. But they remember, they remember people who thought they were grad students. They'll remember that person. So I tell them that. But, and the other thing that I tell people is read who's writing stuff on your area because uh, uh, the new stuff that's coming out. So one of my pet peeves in Latino studies is that everybody mentions Gloria Ansaldúa. And that's it. That's it. That's all they do. They're like, Latinos, Gloria Ansaldúa. And then like, wait, Gloria died a whole bunch of years ago and Gloria never wrote about the media, you know, and I had conversations with Gloria and she didn't like the fact that people used her name to avoid reading the research that was out there. She hated that. She told me that in person, you know, and that's still the way. So I always like, oh, the Gloria Ansaldúa moment. It's like, yes, we need to keep being intersectional and remember inclusivity and they put Ansaldúa. That's it. And that's an excuse not to engage with the research. And there's so much wonderful research coming out. So I'm always, uh, as a senior scholar, I think it is our duty to foreground the research of junior scholars and say, this is what's coming up the pipe. Arcelia, Arcelia Gutierrez just published this wonderful article in television and new media that I've already cited in an article I just finished and submitted yesterday, right? Diana Leon Boyce writes this stuff on Elena Avalor and Flexible Latinidad. I'm referencing that. So I'm referencing, you know, stuff that is coming out that is really good, that engages us rather than saying, oh, yeah, Gloria Saldua Latinas, I'm done with that. And I find that to be problematic. And I'm beginning to call it out. You know, excellent. And just to follow up on that, um, it is true, I agree with you, um, that the, the job market in the academy, at least in, in the social sciences has become uh, more challenging over the past couple of decades. Together with that, there has been a significant increase in the expectation of, of productivity, that the number of publications uh, that people you know, have when they go on the market is orders of magnitude higher than at least what I had when I was on the market 20 years ago. Um, and it was quite okay. I had two articles. Nowadays, we have people with 20, right? right. Um, and there is also uh, much more of an interest in writing for broader audiences um, and in part the expectation of doing like public scholarship, right? In particular uh, for groups um, whose voice has, uh, whose voices have been uh, suppressed, right? So there is the sense, the urge, uh, you know, to, to write and to connect, but that takes time as well, right? So, um, um, what advice do you tend to give, you know, for people who who feel that you know they have to publish a lot, and at the same time they want to engage in public debates, and it's also in part expected that they will engage in public debates, um, you know, either through like op-eds or media writing or even on social media, 
Um, so do you have any thoughts about how, you know, uh, young scholars in particular uh, from, from uh, uh, you know, the Latinx community could sort of navigate successfully uh, these challenges? Okay, so yeah, we expect so much of these young scholars, you know, like you said, when we went up for our jobs, uh, we had a totally different vita than we are expecting them to have. When we went out for tenure, uh, our files were not as thick as we expect them to have to get a job, you know, in many cases. So I, I do mentor a lot of junior scholars. The first thing I tell them is, you got to take care of yourself because if you if you you know this is too much this is too much if you pursue uh, and so it's like when you fly if i ever fly again right it's like put the mask on yourself before you put it on somebody else so i'm like are you putting the mask on yourself because i i also say you got to have a life because the last thing i want or the last thing i can even needs and i know you will agree with me on this is another bitter colleague you know what i mean bitter people who didn't have a life Another your colleagues and the, and the faculty meeting is their life and they're bitter. Oh my God. So I tell them that I'm not trying to create that. So you need to have a life, you know? And I also tell them academia will never love you. The university will never be your family. The university cares not about you at all. You have to recognize it for what it is. It's a neoliberal institution and it cares about itself. And many, and many, many times there's no recourse. If you've been wronged, there's no recourse. Despite everything that is there in those little, little documents, they're gonna win. So, you know, whatever. So, so remember that and I tell them to center themselves because I don't want them to turn 50 or 60 and be bitter and have given up their youth to an institution that cares not for them other than as fodder. So I think that that, when you would start from that kind of centralization of a core of value, but not for the university, but in relation to community, right? That then you'll be able to weather what is very turbulent waters in the academy. So you gotta start from that, I tell them. I, you know, when they come to me and I'm like, are you getting enough sleep? Well. You can't do this if you don't get enough sleep. You know what I mean? Uh, during the summers, we're like, we, we have a food bank because there's food insecurity. Can students produce without food? No, you need to have a food bank because if you don't fund them during the summer, what do you think happens? You know, I mean, this is not, doesn't take a PhD to do that math. And then after you can kind of do that, then chart a path that you find doable and that you can live with, you know, and a lot of times I don't, I don't buy this BS about follow your passion. I think that's a rich, a rich person's kind of like follow your passion. I'm like, yeah, right. Like that was ever my option, you know, but to be grounded in something that is not dependent on the university and then to figure out what the rules are and who your allies are. And that, as you know, is a very difficult task because God knows I've been wrong. You know, I've made that mistake till today. I mean, all the time, I'm like, oh, wow, I just figured that out. And so it's very difficult. So to find a group that'll be your community as you move through this process to, to, to figure out who your advisors and mentors can be and to provide that service to others too, because you can't just draw on that, but you have to be, again, community, a core that does not depend on valuation by the academy, because that'll just not lead to any good and it'll make you a bitter person. And the academy 
or no institution needs any more bitter adults. I hope you agree with me on that. I, oh, I bet one hundred. <laughs> I don't want to create any more bitterness. <laughs> no, no, one hundred and ten percent. Yes, no, 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 absolutely. Um, so, so I'm gonna if if you had magical powers, you know, and and could be granted one wish about how you'd like the field of communication and media studies to change. What would you wish for? I would wish for, I, and I thought about this, and I actually thought about this a lot. I would wish for a, a pool of resources so that when the students graduating, instead of like immediately have to land running on, on, you know, and publish and do all these things that you said, that they would have a year in a place with other recent graduates, kind of like a postdoc fellowship, but not so, because a lot of postdocs now require people to teach. In fact, Nevada, University of Nevada has a postdoc with a 5-5 teaching load. I don't know about you, but that's, that, that's not a postdoc. Yeah. <laughs> that is not that why do they have that number i mean that name to that it just like the, the venn diagram is like this postdoc five five they don't go like this so uh so i would like there to be resources for people to take a breather after they finish their dissertation without even an expectation of publication but to to talk and see where they're going to go um, that not to count against them that not to, it's not to people to say, oh, why did you do that year? It's like, oh, that was the year that you were able to refocus and relaunch yourself now as an adult in the, in the academic sense, right? Post-dissertation, because nowadays, you know, I'm sending my students, they're getting a job, they have to publish their book, they have to create five new syllabi, they have to figure out everything you said. They're doing podcasts, they're doing NGOs, they're trying to have a public face, they're you know, that's, that's just too much. We should really kind of dial back. In fact, I've often encouraged people to stop publishing because I'm like, I can't keep up with all the reading. We should have a three-year moratorium on publishing. That's what I said. Because <laughs> I can't catch up. You know, every day I get a new book. I, I just recently got uh, Anjali Vats, The Color of Creatorship, which is so good. And I'm also making my way through this one. Manufacturing Celebrity by Vanessa Diaz uh -huh. on Latinos, Latino paparazzi and women's reporters in Hollywood. Also incredible, you know, and then I'm trying to teach and do all this. Somebody would just take a break so I can catch up because I really want to also enjoy the pleasure of reading this wonderful stuff that's being produced by our junior scholars. The field is theirs, you know, and I, and I, take, a, I take a certain amount of satisfaction in thinking, the field is in good hands. Oh, the field is in great hands, and you've mentored many of them. Oh, uh, you so too, I'm sure. Yeah. That's excellent. So thank you very, very much for a spectacularly insightful conversation. I really enjoyed uh, learning more about your career and your views on career trajectories and the academy. So um, thank you for joining us. Thank you to our audience for listening. And I invite you uh, to the next episode of El Café Latinx, where we'll continue these conversations uh, about the experience as a Latinx person in the Communication and Media Studies Academy. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me and have a great day. 
El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.